to your attention this morning as we go into this time of baptism because I want us together to include this as part of our corporate worship. The same as when we sing, the same as when we pray, the same as when we listen to the preaching, this is part of worship. And in our membership covenant at Crosspoint, we've got three details that we want people to understand in regards to baptism. The first is that when someone is baptized, we've got three little ones coming this morning from the Fult family, the Shepherd family, and the Holloways. And um, what we want people to understand when, when we're getting baptized, we're having a baptism, first is that those being baptized are baptized into Christ's death. Now, at first, that might sound like bad news because you might be thinking, who wants to be baptized into anyone's death? That sounds rough. But Christ is the only one who ever conquered death. Christ is the one who conquered death and gave us a way to be forgiven of our sins. So it's good news for, for Emma and for Chloe and for Bailey to know you're baptized into Christ's death because Christ conquered death. And so that's significant, and we are able to rejoice with them as they do that this morning. The second thing is you're baptized into a people. And that means that um, the way I've described it with the kids when, when we've met is that your story is not just this individual story of a lone ranger who follows Jesus, but it's the story of, of a person who is um, part of a people. One way to think of it is that if you're a Christian, your story as a Christian is the story of a people. And so you're joining in and you're bringing gifts to the body. And so you're baptized into Christ's death you're baptized into the people of God, and then you're also making an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, as sinners, we know that the thing that would make us not have a good conscience is our sin. And so when we say these girls who are coming to be baptized are making an appeal to God for a good conscience, all that means is they're saying, I'm making an appeal to God to forgive me of my sin. I want to do it publicly in front of everybody because that's the only thing that gives me a good conscience. And so this morning, those three things contribute to why this is a continued time of celebration. We're not taking a break from corporate worship to have some baptisms. We are celebrating with these families. Y'all have a lot of family that you brought with you. It's a privilege to celebrate with you guys the beginning of the journey of faith for these little ones. And you have responsibility in that to continue to walk with them. So that responsibility, um, one of the ways we indicated is, is the dads are the ones who uh, do the baptizing. Um, parents are the ones who are the main disciple makers in the lives of their kids. And so the dads are going to come up and uh, baptize their kids, and we're going to start with the Fulps and go from there. So y'all come on up. I forgot to tell you, talk real loud, and that mic will pick you up. Is it cold? No, it's not. All right, this is Chloe, and... Uh, Chloe began asking a couple weeks ago about baptism and uh, what, it, what it meant, and I didn't really have a good sound way to answer that to a six-year-old, you know, to, to get it across, and so um, I did what the church has taught me to do, and that was just go to scripture, and so we went through uh, many conversations of what it meant uh, to be baptized and uh, looking at some, some key verses and, and really talking it over. And uh, what I've seen in Chloe over the past few weeks is just a real tremendous faith um, in Christ and talking about um, what it, even just hard things like death. And um, so uh, I've seen her begin to open up in, uh, in wanting to pray in front of people. Uh, she's really shy, so, so that was a huge step for her to be able to just open up and really start to, to pray in front of others. So... Um, Thank you guys in, in celebrating this with us. <clears throat> Got a couple questions here, Ray. Do you have any hope uh, without Christ? No. Are you trusting Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Yes. Chloe, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
this is Emma, and um, several months ago, she started asking a lot of questions about Christ and the cross, and it seemed like she was finally starting to understand what we've been, you know, we've been trying to teach her for a while, and it seemed like it was finally starting to penetrate her heart, and um, a couple months ago, after Wednesday night church one night, she came home and she said she wanted to pray the prayer and accept Jesus into her heart. Um, so, with that being said, Emma, is it true that you've accepted Christ into your heart as your Lord and your Savior? Yes. <laughs> Do you have any hope without Christ? No. It is my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father. Son and the Holy Spirit. This is Bailey, and she's got a real similar story, I guess. She started asking about baptism in particular as soon as she had a buddy or a friend or saw somebody else do it. She wanted to do it, too. Um, and we've kind of tapped the brakes a little bit for the past few months and really saw a transition when she asked her mom a couple weeks ago, am I a Christian, where in the past, I mean, she knew... She was a professing Christian and was willing to talk about it, but you could tell there was a real sincerity whenever she had to stop and think and actually ask the question, am I a Christian and do I have Jesus? And that, that opened the door for us to have some really good conversations and some good answers for her, and um, we, we, knew it, we knew it was time for, for her to take the next step. Bailey, do you welcome Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and treasure? Yes. Do you have any hope other than through Jesus Christ? No. All right. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if y'all would bow with me, and uh, let me pray before we continue in worship. Father God, we come to you today with an awful lot to be thankful for, and specifically as a, as a father, I want to thank you for coming into Bailey's heart and all these other little girls' hearts here recently, and um, I want to thank you specifically in my case for, for a renewed perspective. Um, my role as, as a provider, a lot of times, I'm, I'm guilty of weighing myself down with <clears throat> the worldly provision that I'm responsible for. And an enormous burden has been lifted today knowing that her ultimate and final and eternal provision has been made by you through your son's sacrifice. And, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. And, and also want to ask you to keep me and keep the folks and keep keep this whole body close to you as, as we move forward together. Amen.
sweet morning so far. I love beginning our mornings with worship and song, with baptism. It's just always incredibly sweet, and we see how blessed we are in the Lord. Um, I wanted to, uh, again, just welcome everybody. If, if you are here visiting just as a family member of one who was baptized, we really want you to understand we count it a privilege to, to worship with y'all. We count it a privilege to kind of be with y'all, even though we're not all part of the same church family, be with y'all on the journey, um, watching these young ladies um, grow in their faith. And so it's, it's a real privilege to get to worship with y'all this morning. If you are visiting um, and you're looking for a church home, and so I'm, I'm separating those because I don't want y'all to feel like I'm recruiting you, you know, to be a part of this church if you have your own church home. But if you're, if you're visiting and you're looking for a church home, I want to encourage you, we've got this welcome card that has some information, and then we ask for some information on the, on the bottom part. And if y'all could fill that out, if, if you're visiting and looking for a church home, this is the way that we try to get you the information you need to make wise decisions regarding a church home. Because uh, whether you're visiting this one or you're visiting other churches trying to figure out where you need to be, because we would say, you definitely need a church home, we encourage people to take their time with that decision. Like, if you go visit somewhere else, visit for a month at a time at least to understand the lingo and what people believe. And so this gives a little bit of what we believe, and then we try to get your information on the bottom. And so you can either put these in the uh, offertory satchels, I'm not real sure what they're called, but they're little bags with handles, and uh, put them in that satchel. Or we have a table over to the right of the coffee bar in the other building where someone will be after this service who will greet you and give you uh, information um, that, that you can need to, to make that decision wisely. So if you could do that, that would be great. Um, y'all go ahead and pray with me, and then we'll dive into the sermon. Lord, we come to you now. Humbly, um, knowing that aside from the work of the Spirit, this whole time has really no meaning. But we're also, in that humble approach, we're also eager. And we have expectations and hopes because we know that you promise that the word doesn't return void. And you promise that where we're gathered, you're there. And so I am really thankful that you are with us this morning, Lord. And I pray that... Um, that you would use this common, fragile, um, sometimes scatterbrained preacher to preach your, your message that you want your people to hear this morning. Lord, we pray uh, for, for Chloe and for Emma and for Bailey. And I am so thankful to see them make their public profession of faith, to see them make an appeal to you for a good conscience, to see them be baptized into Christ's death, to see them uh, be, become... Um, a part of the story of a people as they're baptized into the body. Lord, I pray that you would be with them in their journey. I pray that you would grow them up to be women of strong faith. I pray that you would keep them in step with your spirit. I pray that they would have conviction, that they would have hearts not of stone but of flesh that respond to your word and that respond to the, the discipling that's taking place in their homes by their faithful parents. I am thankful for faithful parents who raised their children in the fear and discipline of the Lord. What a, what a great thing we celebrate this morning. Lord, we also, as we do every Sunday, we want to lift up uh, a local church. We, we pray for Grace Community. Lord, two things. I thank you for the over 15 years of faithful ministry that Steve Lawson has had there. And I am, I, I am thankful for him. I'm thankful for his friendship. I'm thankful for his consistency um, in this community and the way that he has served, the way he has been spending and being spent gladly on the souls of your children in a number of different ways. And as they make transitions right now, I pray that you would bless he and his wife and also pray for Adam Brind and, and uh, pray uh, as, as he steps into that um, new role that you would bless him and encourage him and keep him focused on the things above and not distracted by earthly things but stewards of his time as he serves other people. I pray that you would bless Grace Community, that you would, their, that their time this morning would be sweet that they would be enjoying you through and all the manners which we're getting to enjoy you here this morning. Lord, we also pray for our local city government just um, in general this morning as it is an election season. I pray against division. I pray against bitterness. I pray against lying. Lord, my prayer um, for our city government, whether it's people becoming parts of councils, people looking at um, issues regarding schools, um, development, whatever it might be, um, Lord, my prayer is that there would be honesty and that there would be decisions that are made that genuinely take into account the well-being of the people of this community. 
And I pray that you would use our city government as a means to bless this community. Um, I'm thankful for where we live, and I pray that you bless them in that manner. Lord, regarding our time this morning, we pray for honesty. As we talk about the disciplines, my hope is that we would come away from this time um, more like Christ and more understanding of your design for our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 4. You're going to need your Bibles this morning. Turn to Matthew 4. And um, a little, a little backstory. On Wednesday nights, um, Ben McGraw is the guy who does the majority of the preaching on Sunday mornings here. And I do the majority of the teaching on Wednesday nights. And on Wednesday nights, I've had the privilege of teaching through the spiritual disciplines since January. Now, last year, I got the privilege of going on a, a sabbatical where essentially I'm rendered unemployed for three months. And it was glorious in so many ways, um, that three-month unemployment. Um, however, the, the purpose of that time was rest and growth. And I was pretty eager for the rest, um, who wouldn't be. But the growth time was I wasn't sure what God wanted me to do. And as I prayed through it, he began to reveal to me different things about the spiritual disciplines. And what I realized was that I have a lot of areas in my own life that need some significant work regarding discipline. Uh, just like many of you, I enjoy rest far more than I enjoy work. I enjoy skating by far more than I enjoy having to put my hand to the plow and do some intentional movement. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the spiritual disciplines. They are those things that God calls us to in Scripture as a means of stretching ourselves beyond our natural abilities, just like any discipline. If you're trying to become a runner, you don't just go out and run 10 miles. You run half a mile and you puke and you, and you find out you are in terrible shape and then you run another mile and then you, you build up because you're pushing yourself beyond your natural ability. It's the same with the spiritual disciplines. In Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, he describes them as a means of placing ourselves on the path of disciplined grace. He describes them as placing ourselves on the path of disciplined grace. Some of us would like to think that we can just do whatever we want, whenever we want, and God's grace will just, bam, just change us. Oh, I was a full-blown alcoholic, and I made no plans to change it. Boom, God just changed me, and, or you name it. I was just going in the ways of the flesh. But what God's design is, is there's some things you can do to put yourself in the path of disciplined grace, where God can meet you and, and work on you and change you and shape you in ways that honestly are not going to happen otherwise. There are some people who have these amazing stories where in the, in the moment's time, God changes their hearts. And to some degree, that is all of our story, but the reality is even in that, right after that moment, we need discipline. Right after that moment, we need to be intentional about how we live because we don't just tend to, um, we don't just sort of naturally um, flow in the way of holiness. Um, our flesh is always fighting against us, and we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. So the disciplines are a way of putting yourself in the path of discipline and grace, and all that means is this. By God's design and God's grace, there are disciplines that you can instill in your life, and it's in the pursuit and practice of such things that the Spirit of God shapes us and changes us and warns us and blesses us by these disciplines. So this morning, we're going to consider the spiritual discipline of solitude. If you're taking notes, that would be a, a word to write down. We're talking about the spiritual discipline of solitude. Not all of the disciplines are corporate disciplines. Some of them are disciplines that have to do with your time alone with God. That's, when I say solitude, I'm talking about silence with God, stillness with God. And, and one of the things we're going to talk about in a minute is how we spend a lot of time in John, a lot of time in Hebrews, which are very communal books. And Ben and I talked this last week talking about how, have any of us preached on a quiet time with God, solitude, time alone? And we were trying to rack our brains, and I'm not sure we have. So what I want you to know up front, real clearly, is that the goal this morning is to raise the bar of personal time alone with God without lowering the bar in regards to community. Both are essential, and neither was ever intended to replace the other. So our little roadmap for the morning, we're going to look at some biblical examples of solitude and the purposes that they reveal. Then we're going to look at the potential pitfalls of solitude. 
And we're going to look at the fruit of the discipline of solitude. So I've asked you to turn to Matthew 4. Look at verse 1 with me. And as I read through these things, just ask yourself, what does this have to do with solitude? Don't answer out loud. Ask yourself. That would be awkward for everybody. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He'll command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Satan, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high, a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So the first thing I want us to see just as an example is that Jesus began his earthly ministry. The inauguration of Jesus' ministry on earth began with 40 days of solitude with his father. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at just a handful of examples from the Gospels because I want it to be clear that I'm not making stuff up because I've been known to do that. Luke 6, 12 says this. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So Jesus began his earthly ministry with time alone with God in the desert for 40 days. And then before this important step in his ministry of choosing who the 12, the the big 12 that we know and that we have heard about and we have so many stories about throughout the Gospels, before choosing them, he went and spent time alone with his father at night in prayer, listening and talking to God. Turn over to Matthew 14. Look at verse 13. Matthew 14, 13. It says, now when Jesus heard this, the this that is being referred to there is the fact that John the Baptist died. John the Baptist who baptized Jesus, like the thing we witnessed this morning, the guy who baptized Jesus Christ died. And it says, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat, to a desolate place by himself. So Jesus Christ is revealing that Jesus Christ needed solitude with the Father, particularly in this time of mourning and and reflecting on the life of his good friend, John the Baptist. Turn over to Mark chapter 1. I'm intentionally making you turn to these because I feel the need to convince A group of people that live in a crazy culture where solitude is very hard to come by. I'm wanting you to see these biblical examples with your own eyes. This is intentional. You're not going to be turning like this all morning. But right now, I want you to look at Mark 135. It's interesting because as you read up to it, you see Jesus being baptized. You see the temptation of Jesus. You see Jesus calling the disciples. And then you see the healing of a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus healing many, lots of healing in his earthly ministry. And then in verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So after the healing of many as part of his ministry, he saw it necessary to seek solitude with his father. Now finally, look at Mark 6. Just in case anyone's thinking, well, Jesus and God, you know, they're close. 
maybe that's just how they roll. They just need to spend a whole lot of time together. I'm not Jesus. Um, and, and that's why we're going to Mark 6, because Jesus says something. Look at 30. Mark 6, 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So Jesus is the one who sent them out to do the ministry that he gave to them. And they come back and they say, Jesus, this is what we, look at all the stuff we did. Almost like kids coming home from school. What would you do? Look at this, look at this, look at this thing I drew. Look at this conversation I had. They're coming back to Jesus and they're saying, look at all the ministry. Look at the healing. This is what we said. And look at what Jesus tells them to do. In the same manner that he's been moving, he says in verse 31, And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So we have biblical examples of solitude, and I'm intentionally making sure we use the examples of Jesus Because our goal in life is to be more Christ-like. Our goal is to grow in holiness. And the things that we learn from these few examples that we just saw about the purpose of the discipline of solitude is, one, solitude is appropriate for preparation for ministry. Sometimes we get so caught up in the preparations of things that need to be done, the preparations of life and ministering to other people and how is this going to work, that we forget the solitude time. But solitude is appropriate for preparation for ministry. And it's also appropriate for resting after ministry. Some people just go from one thing to another to another. It's like there are people in this body who lose their mind if they don't have dinner to cook for someone. They're just so big-hearted and open-handed, and they go, and they go, and they serve, and they serve, and they serve, but we need solitude to prepare for the ministry. We're supposed to have solitude after the ministry. Preparing to battle Satan, 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and praying in the wilderness alone with his father, Jesus prepared to battle Satan. How could we think that Jesus would need such preparation and such battle and, and, and say that we ourselves don't need time alone with God? Mourning and refre- reflecting the loss of a loved one. And here's one of the kickers. I want us to see, make the connection, like, so as you go and do these things, do as Jesus did. But look at, did, did anyone pick up on when most of the solitude happened? Because some of y'all are sitting here going, this is an awesome sermon. I hate people. I don't like being around anybody. This is great. The, the, the pastor's saying that's totally cool. I can just get away from people. I go back to my house in the woods and do whatever I want. That's not what we're talking about. This is an intentionally used time. And do you notice when it happened most? Usually, solitude happens early in the morning and late at night. Some of y'all are like, oh, I was with you up until that point. I'm not a morning person, and I'm not really a night person. Early in the morning and late at night, why? Because you're living life with other people during the day. I mean, it's not to say you can't ever get away during the day for solitude. Sometimes you need to go somewhere for a weekend and get away. But the pattern that we see here is Jesus getting up early in the morning, or Jesus staying up late at night. Sometimes we can make an idol out of sleep, even. Sleep's a good thing. You need it. God designed you to spend a third of your life in bed. So don't be so arrogant as to say, I don't need sleep. Uh, I'm good. No, you go about three days. uh, We call you like legally crazy. So you need sleep, but don't make an idol out of of a good thing like sleep. Early in the morning and late at night, that's going to be a challenge to some of us. So at this hope, at this point, my hope is that we can at least begin to see the deep need for solitude. But I want to ask, are there any potential pitfalls for solitude? Because we've spent a lot of time talking about the beauty of community, and, and we haven't talked a whole lot about the, the pitfalls of community, but what about solitude? As we're talking about the need for it, are there any potential pitfalls? And I want you to turn to 1 Peter 5.8. 1 Peter 5.8. Are there any, is there any potential thing that's wrong with being alone with God? And 1 Peter 5.8 says this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, or adversary, depending on how you want to say it, 
the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're talking about the potential pitfall for time alone, time away, time not around other people. And we have this verse that says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When God looks at his created beings, you, room full of them, and he says, here's how I want you to picture Satan. He wants you in your mind to picture a lion going after prey. That's how he wants you to view Satan. Like if you go to Africa and there's lions and you're just kind of flipping about it, you don't last very long. Like whatever, lion. No, he'll eat you. He'll devour you. And so here, God's saying, I want you, when you think about Satan, I want you to consider how lions move. And lions don't just attack 10 zebras at once. They take the one that is isolated from the group. There's a difference between isolation and solitude. He's seeking someone to devour. And what you need to know is that in solitude, though solitude is a very good thing, in solitude, there's a level of vulnerability there that means you got to be watchful, you have to be careful, you have to be sober-minded, and you have to make sure that you don't exist in a life of solitude. Because God's design is that you have both. So one of the potential pitfalls is that When Satan's looking for someone to devour, he's looking for someone who's isolated themselves from everybody else. So don't let solitude turn into isolation because the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. What I'm getting at here is that there must be balance. There must be balance. We're called to corporate worship. We're called to community living. I've already said five times this morning, your story is the story of a people So your story began with Adam and Eve, and you can go through all those, and that's your story. Community is huge, but there has to be balance. When we're truly gathered into corporate worship, things occur that could never occur while we're alone. Think about just this morning. When we're gathered into corporate worship, things occur that could never occur while we're alone. Likewise, when we're alone and silent with God, things occur that could never happen in corporate worship. There has to be a balance. I want you all to think of it in terms of a three-legged table. That's probably a, an odd illustration for me to transition to, and you're, you're probably not saying, mind-blown, three-legged table. Go with me. We have two three-legged tables in our house, and I hate both of them. I accidentally left one outside, and it was warped by the rain, so we're down to one, but we had two. Three-legged tables. Why, why do I hate these three-legged tables? Well, because if one leg is ever so slightly off, like you set your coffee on it and it just goes and falls over. Or the kids come up, hey, Dad, and they, and they knock the three-legged table over and the lamp falls on the ground and the light bulb sideways now. I hate these three-legged tables. I don't know why anyone makes them. It's almost like it's cruel. This illustration, um, God's not cruel. Don't, don't take the illustration too far. The illustration that I'm going for is this. We're called to corporate work. We're called to this corporate communal movement in a large part where weekly we gather together, everybody. But then you're also called to meet with smaller groups. Jesus did this within the 12. He chose the 12, and he was closer to three. So we, we have in this body life groups that meet every week where it's smaller, where you can get together and talk about some things that you've heard. Talk about what you guys are, are going through in life. That could be life groups, disciple group, discipleship groups, accountability groups, LTGs. So we have the one leg that is this, the one leg that is the life group, discipleship group, But then the third leg is time alone with God. And the issue is you you can't correct a lack of time alone with God by like shortening the other leg of corporate worship. You can't take some off of this to correct it. You just got to prop that leg back up in there. And I think that's what some people are going to need to respond with this morning. That if one of those is out of whack, the whole thing's a little bit precarious. The whole thing is out of balance. And you need all three All three need to be in their proper place because there are things that happen in this gathering that cannot happen when you're alone, and there are things that happen when you are alone with God that cannot happen in this kind of a gathering. Bonhoeffer has a quote that I want to share with you. He says this, Let him who cannot be alone beware of community, and let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants to fellowship with solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings, and one who seeks solitude without fellowship 
perishes into the abyss of vanity and self-infatuation. What that means is that if you have all this community time with other people but no time alone with God, all the community time is going to turn into a void of words and feelings. All you're going to talk about is, did you see this on TV? Did you hear about this thing? How do you feel about it? That's how I feel about it. I hate this. I love this. And it's just void. It's just empty. If there's no time where you're going over your own thoughts with God and hearing from God, when we gather together, it's going to be very vain, very empty. In a like manner, if you don't have community and you don't like community and you, have all the, you spend all your time alone, it's just a matter of time before you become a very vain, self-infatuated individual who only cares about your opinions, who's not rounded out by others. So you need both. This church has had 12 years of preaching from two very community-oriented books, and it has been good. The book of John and the book of Hebrews, they are all about community. The book of John and the book of Hebrews are jam-packed with details like perichoresis. Some of y'all were here during that, where it's this blurry dance where you can't tell where one person's actions begin and the other's end and, and it's blurry, and it's beautiful. It's a dance, and that's how we are when we're together in community. We talked about John 17, the high priestly prayer, that our union with one another would be like the unity of the Trinity. God says, the same way I am with my Father, I hope that y'all are together. I want it to be that full, that fulfilling, that encouraging, that beautiful. The Hebrews let us passages over and over. Let us do this. Let us do this. Let us not Forget to meet together. Let us not neglect that. Let us stir one another up by way of reminder. All of the plural verbs in John and Hebrews that we recapped a little bit last week, all those plural verbs. If you're a member of Crosspoint Fellowship, I (laughs) have... Power to the people. If you're a member, an excited member even of Crosspoint Fellowship, and, um, and you've been here through those times... I have very little concern that you would have a low view of community. If you're a member of Crosspoint, I have very, very little concern that you would have a low view of community. However, there's something that pulls at me when I hear Bonhoeffer's warning. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. In our embrace of community, we've also had to embrace some inconveniences and inefficiencies that go along with it. Like this week, we have, I get the irony, we have all of our children in here with us and I'm preaching on solitude. I get it. It's funny. Oh, you want me to spend some quiet time alone with God? Let me remind you why I can't. <laughs> but we've embraced things because we know that by God's design, one of the beauties of community is that we don't have to be divided by ages. We don't take children and remove them from all the adults and families up through grade school, up through youth, and then they go off to college, meet someone, get married, start a family, and we expect them to be family people? That's not how it works. So from early on, we have our children in worship with us. We have our children in life group with us. We have discussions with our children. Our faith is is, is something we talk about. And the result is it's less efficient. Some of y'all have to parent today from the pew. Some of y'all will have to go after this message and listen to it online because you've had your kid in a headlock and it's totally cool. It's okay. It's, it's, um, it's inefficient. Sometimes it's inconvenient. You're gonna have, when we have kids, we take more bathroom breaks. It's not the end of the world if your kid has to go to the bathroom in corporate worship. So we have these inconveniences and these efficiencies, these inefficiencies that go along with it that we've embraced. But here's what I want you to see. With this high view of community that we have, A loss of personal solitude is not an embraceable inconvenience. Please hear that. A loss of personal solitude is not an embraceable inconvenience. It's an imbalance that must be corrected. Why? Because our Bibles would lead us to see that community is damaged and malnourished if the members of it are not spending time alone with God. I want you to hear that. Community, no matter how high your view of it is, is in fact damaged and malnourished if the members of that community are not spending time alone with God. So I want us to take a minute to consider the fruit of solitude. 
Because to, to understand how community might be damaged if we don't have it, how might community benefit from if we do have solitude and time alone with God throughout the week? What happens in those quiet moments? What happens? Okay, Scott, you're telling me to spend time alone with God. What's supposed to happen in that moment? And I want you to remember first that this is a discipline. And the aim of all the disciplines is total transformation of the person. When we talk about the disciplines, this is not sort of a, a, an exercise of saying, if you want to be a little closer to God and you want to go a little deeper in your prayer, give the disciplines a try. That's not how we approach the disciplines. We approach the disciplines by saying, I am a worshiper and a follower of God who is in need of total transformation. I don't need something to dabble in so that I might just increase a little bit. We come before God humble knowing that we need total transformation. So what's the fruit of solitude? Well, the aim of it is total transformation. You got to be a steward of your times alone. What I mean is this. Being away from people, just the absence of people, is not solitude. It may be enjoyable. It may be quiet, finally. But that's not actually what solitude is. There's intentionality in solitude. Isolation is not solitude. Loneliness is not solitude. In fact, God would call you from loneliness to solitude. We use that time intentionally. And it's hard. We live in an age where everyone's phone is always on. Stinking iPads are always on. The te- there was a time, I remember even when I was younger, where there was a certain point where TV wasn't really worth watching. We had 4, 5, 8, 11, 13, 21, 27. Those were our channels. And there was a certain point where it was like, everything's a lame infomercial, and you don't want to watch it. But now, all day, every day, for the entire duration of all of your lives, you can watch thousands of channels on anything you want. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between. It's never off. No one turns the internet off. It's always on. I think that poses as a significant challenge to people who are called to exercise the discipline of solitude. So, turn to 2 Timothy 2.7. What are we doing during this time, at least in part? I want you to know as you're turning there that I am not being exhaustive in the things that happen in solitude because that's time between you and God. God will deal with you and show you things and encourage you in ways that I can't explain from the pulpit right now because it's personal between the two of you. But in 2 Timothy 2.7, we begin to get an idea of what happens. Paul had a very close relationship with Timothy. Paul was older, Timothy was younger. And Paul would tell Timothy things, and Timothy would, would glean understanding and insight and wisdom from Paul so that he could go and do ministry and he could live rightly in this world. And look at what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 7. He says, Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is such a huge verse. Timothy, think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. No one else can think your thoughts for you. And in case there's any question, you're supposed to think your own thoughts. We're not robots. A pastor doesn't just get up here and say something and you say, that must be true, the pastor said it, I'm going to go walk in it. You have your own thoughts. The Spirit can speak to you in ways that are unique to the way He speaks to the person sitting next to you. Not everybody comes away from every sermon getting all the same stuff out of it. It's bizarre when I hear conversations. The person sitting right here can get this out of it, and the person sitting over here got something totally different. And it's because the Spirit was speaking to them. Think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding. This means that the corporate gathering for the preached word each week may very well be one of the most important times each week for equipping. You've heard Ben talk about how you come to be equipped to do the work of ministry. This in itself is not the work of ministry, but you're equipped for it. So when you gather and you hear a sermon, you hear someone teaching, someone preaching, whether it's here, whether it's Wednesday night, whether it's at your life group, you're hearing things that you're supposed to go and think about. It's a time of equipping. But the time alone with God 
may very well be the most important time each week regarding understanding. To be clear, this is not the most important time each week in, in regards to understanding. You're supposed to take things you hear in settings like this and go think about them. And as you sit quietly in your own place and you think about them with the Lord, the Lord will give you understanding, it says, in everything. Isn't that encouraging? I hate it when I don't understand things. But I'm so encouraged that God would say, go spend some time alone. And in those moments of quietness, I will give you understanding in the things you were thinking about, and I'm going to give you understanding in other things you didn't even know you needed understanding in. It's beautiful, and it's a blessing. Time alone with God may very well be the most important time each week in regards to understanding. The reality is that without true understanding, there's no true obedience. Scripture says, be hearers of the word and doers of the word, lest you're deceived. What that means is that I could sit here and preach a message that's really clear, and you could hear it, but if you don't go do it, you've been deceived by the very truth even about Jesus that you've heard. You you haven't done anything once you've heard it. You've got to go think about it and consider, how do I apply these things to my life? How does this affect me as a spouse? How does this affect me as a parent? How does this affect me as a friend? Without time alone with God, I don't know how we get direction in those things. So to be clear, the first piece of fruit in regards to solitude is understanding. Think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding. I've always, uh, that spot up there is blank because someday I want to have a mural painted that says, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding. So that every time you leave this building, you know the work doesn't stop just because I sat through the whole sermon. The work starts when you go out there and think over what has been said, knowing that God will give you understanding. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 26. First Corinthians is written to a church in Corinth that was one of the most disorderly, jacked up, messed up, sideways churches that ever existed on earth. They got things wrong a lot. They were getting drunk on communion. They were arguing with each other, taking each other to court. They were having fights. There was all kinds of just dishonesty and division. I mean, you could almost look at them and be like, that's a church? That is messed up. And Paul spent a lot of time trying to help them uh, understand what's right and wrong and giving order to when you guys come together, um, you're not supposed to have fist fights. Uh, when you guys come together, you're not supposed to get drunk. When you guys come, like, he, he's trying to give order. And listen to the order that he gives in this verse. In 1426, it says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Scripture is referring to bringing a word from God with you back to the rest of the group when you come together. The indication is clear. Where did that word come from? Time alone with God. What I want us to see here is that there are things, insights, understandings, discernments that you glean in your time alone with God that you're supposed to bring back to the rest of the group. This is not only a time where a a sermon is cooked up and and served up as a meal to you and you just come here. You're supposed to come here ready to do something. Even though there's a time where we stop down and we listen to preaching, you're supposed to come here not just to receive every Sunday morning. When you gather in the corporate gathering, you're supposed to bring something with you. You're supposed to look for people who need love. You're supposed to look for people who need help. You're supposed to show up here eager to maybe make connections with people that will result in blessings and prayer and and being edified and built up and encouraged and stirred up. But you won't come with any of those things if you have no time alone with God. You won't show up for corporate worship with that attitude if you came on a Sunday morning, left went to life group and came back on a Sunday morning and there was no movement with God and time alone between all of it. You won't show up eager for those connections, eager for those opportunities to serve. By design, orderly worship happens when the people of God spend time alone with God and bring something from God back to bless the rest of the group. And what a massive blessing that would be if everyone shows up with something from the Lord, something that they've been learning, something they've been growing in, insight, encouragement, 
what a blessing that is. So one piece of fruit is understanding, and the other piece of fruit is that you have insight that you bring back to the community that you don't have unless you spend time alone with God. Think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding. When you come together, you bring these things. So when we talk about understanding that God gives you after you hear the word and think through it, meaning you don't have the level of understanding you're supposed to have just because I preached it and you heard it. When we talk about that understanding, I want you to think in terms of seeing and hearing. The Bible speaks in terms of seeing and hearing. He who has eyes to see, see. He who has ears to hear, truly hear. And what, what that's talking about is true understanding when we see and when we hear. And what I want you to know is that it is in seeing and hearing, it's largely in those times where you're alone with God that you gain valuable things that you bring back to the community of faith. Foster, in his book on discipline, says this, like Jesus, we must go away from people so that we can be truly present with people when we're with them. Like Jesus, we must go away from people so that we can be truly present when we're with people. Do you know that there is the possibility that you could be constantly surrounded with people and never be fully present? I think it happens a lot. You don't even know what your own thoughts are. It's such a blur of craziness and input. There's a guy named Neil Postman who wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and he wrote it about the telegraph. He didn't even write it before the internet was flipped on or whatever. Gore did. He, he wrote it about the telegraph, saying that it turned the entire world into a community and a neighborhood. And he was like, it's insanity. The queen has a cold. Who cares? That doesn't affect your life. You can't make any changes today. And he goes on talking about the Im immense distractions of having information that's totally void of context. And that's a lot of what our news is. Most of what we call news isn't news. And he wrote this book before the internet, before this explosion of just random information with absolutely no context. And so if we just have input like that all the time, or we're on our phones, or we're on our iPads, or we're with our families, and, and we don't have any time alone, or we just go from event to event, when you're actually with people, you're not going to be actually fully present with them. And it's God's design that you would be fully present when you're with other people, looking at them, making eye contact, listening to what's going on in their lives, enjoying the moment as a blessing because people are actually interesting. God created the person in front of you in his image. But if we're just uber distracted all the time and we're actually with people, it's just going to be one more distraction. One, one more distraction. You're not going to be really present. So like Jesus, sometimes you got to go away from people so that we can be truly present when we're with them. There's the possibility you can be constantly surrounded and never be fully present. And I also want you to see that we're not just talking about church people. Remember all the examples that we've talked about from Jesus at the beginning of the sermon? Those were largely people who didn't know Jesus. Those were largely people who Jesus was drawing to himself. Those were largely people who were not of faith. So what I want you to see also, another piece of the fruit of solitude, is that solitude benefits the community of faith, and solitude benefits the community of faithlessness. And you are supposed to be making time for both. And in solitude, God will help you to make time for those who are believers and those who are not believers and to be genuinely fully present when you're with them. If you're a Christian who loves hanging out with Christian people and then you find yourself miffed and arrogant when you're not with Christian people but you're around a bunch of pagans, that's not God's design. God's design is whether you're with believers or not believers, you would be fully present with them. And you can't do that if you have no time alone with God. You're supposed to be fully present eager to bless, eager to encourage, and eager to serve. You should be making time for both, and solitude will help with that. Thomas Merton observes, he says, it's in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are, not just for what they say. And the only reason you would only love people for what they say is if you're in that cycle of only void words and feelings because you have no solitude. Ben had two illustrations last week that I want to close with. I want to, I want to utilize the illustrations. Some, I'm aware that a number of you sitting here weren't here last week, so I'm going to explain this illustration, but then I want to build on it a little bit. Ben was at the end of Hebrews, 
In 12 years at this church, we went through the book of John, and then we went through the book of Hebrews, and there was such a massive blessing, and Ben has just done such a faithful job in exposing everything that's there. And he was closing with an illustration for Hebrews, saying that sometimes we have these ships, remember the ships illustration for those who are here, that pass, and one ship is the ship of life that you are, it's your life. He said, and you come here, and you hear preaching, you hear teaching, and that's the equipment, the equipment that you need to live life. He said, but a lot of times we just go on with our life and then we see the ship of equipping and you go through the whole week and never do they pass, never do they connect. And he said, it, it, it's, he, he mentioned that sometimes it's troubling where it's amazing God's timing on some of these sermons and we say things and then you sit to counsel with someone and you say, well, what'd you do with Sunday sermon? And they'll say, I, uh, I don't even remember what Sunday sermon was about. I've done like 50,000 things since then. I've been really busy. But there's no connections made. And he's like, so one of Hebrews talked about the importance of this time because of the equipping we're getting. So you got the ship of life and you got this ship of equipping, but they never pass. And I just want to expound the illustration a little bit and say, they meet in solitude. That's where they meet up. You have your life and you have this equipping from teachers and preachers who are blessings to the church. You even have equipping from your um, from others in your life group and, and conversations you have. And when you have time alone, that's when they meet up, is in solitude. Or to say it another way, you could say they meet in the port of understanding. Those two ships meet up in the port of understanding. That's where you get understanding. That's where the equipment makes an impact on your life, is in that port of understanding where you spend time alone with God. The work is so not done on a Sunday morning. It's not complete. The second illustration that he closed with was the marriage metaphor. The marriage metaphor that he shared, he said his first few years of marriage were pretty rough because he, he viewed marriage as an event. So he viewed the wedding day as this event. And so you, you pursue the, la- the lady and you love and you bring flowers, you do all these things. And then you get to the wedding event and then you stop pursuing afterwards because you viewed that as an event. You just go live your life together. Ain't no need to woo the lady. I got her, right? Here... He mentioned that there's a problem when we view our journey of faith like that, where it's like you, you, you stop pursuing God. And th- what I want us to see from that illustration, which was wonderful, is that to stop pursuing because you viewed marriage as an event is the equivalent of not having any time alone with God because you went to corporate worship. Corporate worship's not an excuse. Your children, some of y'all might be thinking, I got... I got 17 kids. You want me to have some time alone with God? Shoot, you're crazy. There is no time alone. There's constantly some, I can't go to the bathroom without a kid being in the bathroom. But God never intended you to use your children as an excuse for a lack of solitude. To say, to stop pursuing because you view marriage as an event is the equivalent of not having any time alone with God because you went to corporate worship. The pursuit takes place in the quiet and undistracted moments together. It's interesting, if you think about marriage, you know, you talk about date night, you want to have a date night, we haven't had time, we're just ships passing in the night, we don't get to talk, we need to get away from everybody, go and have a date night. And what I have found is that oftentimes it's when date nights are the most difficult to come by that they're the most needed, right? You're like, oh, let's look at the schedule. We've got uh, 63 days of constant events, so I guess we can't have a date night this week. That's probably when you most need some time alone with your spouse, a date night. You can continue in the illustration, solitude. Oftentimes, it's when it's the hardest to come by is when it's the most needed. Solitude, when it's the hardest to come by, is oftentimes when it's the most needed. There were even examples in Jesus' life and ministry where he tried to retreat for solitude, and everyone just followed him. Everyone just went after him. He said, okay, we'll try this again in a different way. He kept serving, but he never allowed that busyness to be an excuse for no time alone with God. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking of the disciplined people. You, know, you have those people in your life that you look at and you're like, oh, they're so disciplined. That loser wakes up at five every morning and they go for a run and they eat a healthy breakfast and here I am rolling out at nine or ten or whatever. And sometimes we're convicted about disciplined people, right? We, we sometimes make a mistake in that of thinking that the disciplined person is the person who can do everything. Do y'all, have you all ever thought about that? Where you're like, man, those, those disciplined people, they just do everything. Well, the reality is 
is that's wrong. A disciplined person, biblically, is a person who is able to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. A disciplined person is a person who can do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. That's a biblical picture of discipline. What I want us to see this morning is sometimes the thing that needs to get done is come away by yourselves to a desolate place. Sometimes the thing that needs to get done is time alone with God. Seeking the understanding, the insight, the connections that come from time alone with God. So for those of us who hope to grow in discipline, we're going to have to also grow in solitude without neglecting community. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you now and and I I confess that um, while I see a, a big biblical need for solitude, big biblical need for time alone with you, Lord, I confess in front of everyone that I don't have near enough of it and I struggle to carve it out of the schedule. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be honest and to be sober-minded and to be watchful. Lord, I help, my, my hope is that we would be genuinely present with people when we're with them because of that sweet time that we've had with you. Even now, Lord, I, I would imagine that there's many sitting here thinking, man, my schedule's pretty busy. I, I don't know how much time I can carve out to spend all this alone time with God. I pray that you would help us to make the most of those moments that we have. Help us to redeem our time in the car and redeem our time at the beginning of the day and redeem our time at the end of the day. Lord, my hope for us is that we would see that it is in thinking over what we've heard that you give us understanding. And there are things that we glean in our time with you that will bless community. Lord, help us to have all three of those things in order so that we're not imbalanced and in a precarious state. Lord, I pray that this week we would spend more time alone with you that's intentional with an aim towards transformation. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the supper, and we take the supper every week um, on purpose. Um, There's intentionality in taking it every week. And if you want to turn to to James 1 with me, i got a verse that I want to share with you before we take the supper. It's in James 1. I'm going to start in verse 22. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself (coughs) and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. What this describes could be a people who gather on a Sunday morning, or Sunday morning after Sunday morning after Sunday morning, and they hear a message. And while that message is being preached, it's like they're looking in the mirror and they're going, oh yeah, that's good. Amen. I needed to hear that. Or inwardly, you hear a, a sermon and you say, oh man, that is so true. Oh, that resounds, that, that strikes a chord with me. But if you just go away and you don't think about those things, you don't continue in them, you don't aim to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, it's like this one who looks at himself intently, sometimes for an hour, intently, and then forgets what it was like as they go away and don't spend any more time with it. When we take the supper each Sunday, this is a supper of fidelity. This is a supper of being true unto the Lord. And so as we distribute the elements, what I want you to think about, what I want you to think on in hopes of giving, getting understanding from the Lord, I want you to be honest about your view of solitude. I just want you to be honest with the Lord about your view of time alone with him. I want you to be honest with the Lord if you do have a habit of hearing sermons and then walking away and forgetting what you had looked at intently for an hour, or going to a Bible study and walking away and forgetting 
If you are in a habit and a pattern of life where you're regularly hearing the word and regularly not doing it, that you've been deceived, and that's going to get in the way of that fidelity between you and Christ. And so what I hope for, as we sing Be Still, my hope during this time is that you be honest with the Lord and honest with yourselves as you just think through maybe some areas that need repentance and maybe some ways that you can spend more time with the Lord. Because as we take the supper, there is no greater reminder of the intimacy that God draws us into. He seats us at his table with him. He invites us into the unity of the Trinity. He, he lets us experience things that we cannot experience other It's interesting, the, the church that I grew up in is very different than the church I'm a pastor at now. And the church I grew up in had a very, very high view of your quiet time alone with God to such a degree where it was like, hey, I'm struggling with something, so how's your quiet time? You know, everything was, how's your quiet time? And there was a lingo of sort of the big man upstairs and me and God, and, and everything was, was urged towards that. And really, the, the preaching and time in community was very, very optional just because everyone was so busy. And now the church I'm a part of, I'm so thankful that community is not optional. It's, it's a, an absolute priority for every member. And so um, there's differences in the church I grew up in and, and, and being here. And, and what I realized is that some of y'all may be hearing a message like this and saying, um, oh, man, I can't wait. I, I love quiet time. Oh, this is going to be a great week. I get to go and light my candle and get my little journal and go through all of it. And some of y'all may be saying, I hate being alone with my thoughts. I, don't, I do not even want to give that a go. And what I hope, whether I've been um, convincing enough or not, doesn't matter that much. My hope is that what you see in the Word will convince you that it's needed, that you need this, and that you need time alone with God. And so I want us to take our supper this morning thankful for the communion we have with God as members of community and for the communion we have with God as individuals. Take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, as we continue this morning, I want to acknowledge and make very clear that all of this exists because of Christ because of the finished work of our Savior, because of his spilled blood, because of his dying on the cross, because of his broken body, and because he conquered death, what a privilege it is that we celebrate communion with you, what it is to celebrate what we have as a community, what it is a privilege to celebrate we have as individuals. Lord, we continue to worship you. I pray that we would be wholehearted worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.